CleanFacts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. Okay, before we start this week's show, make sure you get a chance to check out the new IAQRadio.com website. We've got a search box in there. We've got a complete listing of all the shows. Cliff's blog is now easy to find. Just click on any show and uh, scroll down after the show description will be Cliff's blog. We'll be back next Friday live with uh, our next episode of IAQ Radio. In the meantime, enjoy this Flashback Friday. What could possibly be more interesting to discuss about mold and mildew, you might ask? It's all in the content and the presentation style of the person discussing the subject. IQ Radio is delighted to have internationally known and acclaimed expert on the subject, McGregor Pierce of St. Paul, Minnesota, for return appearance on our program. Mac is an environmental health consultant specializing in indoor air quality problems. He has investigated mold in homes, commercial buildings, hospitals, clinics, and skyscrapers. Mold and mildew are at the root of a number of health problems and contribute to building degradation. Mac makes the subject of mycology marvelously interesting. Mac has a master's in public health and is working on his Ph.D. Mac, what, what made you get involved in mold investigation? Uh, I, I didn't, you'll have to ask me that again, Cliff. What, what made me what? What made you get involved in mold investigation? Well, I was tired of spray painting buildings for a living, so I went back to graduate school in my 40s, and uh, I was always better with books and tools anyway, so I wound up getting a degree in environmental health. I thought I was going to get into you know, workplace regulation and you know industrial hygiene, some field like that, but I wound up getting a general environmental health degree, and to get my degree, I had to do a project, and I got it hooked up with the hospital environmentalist at the University of Minnesota, a friend of mine named Andy Streifel, and he said, you know, we have patients in our hospitals dying from mold infections when they get organ transplant, their immune system has to be compromised, and they wind up getting mold in their lungs that grows in them, which would never happen to a healthy person. Anyway, they're concerned about making an indoor air quality environment for those patients that has no mold spores in the air, so they wind up using air filtration. 
and some of the filters work better than others. So Andy gave me a piece of sample ductwork with a fan in it and a filter mounting bracket and sampling ports upstream and downstream of the filter, and I collected thousands of air samples for mold and particle counts as well. Now, these mold samples cost a lot of money to get analyzed by somebody else, so they trained me to do it. Back in the early 90s, they trained me to use a microscope and, you know, culture my own samples, and I got my master's degree, and I wound up falling into a program called the Health House with the American Lung Association, which was just starting up, and I was their health consultant. And I met other people that dealt with problems in buildings, and they said, hey, we need somebody to test for mold. Believe it or not, there weren't any mold testers in the early 90s. I was the only one in town. Hell, I was one of the few in the state. And I turned into a private business. And uh, I've been doing it ever since, although probably less lately, because there's a mold expert on every block. Every cab driver and uh, confused janitor uh, is now a mold expert, and they all uh, do testing. And so I have more competition than ever. Never been much of a self-promoter. But I like science, and I continue studying science, and I find the subject of mycology very interesting. And I'm an amateur. I'm not, I don't have a degree in mycology, but I've read more than most on the subject, and I'm still trying to wade through all of the complex technical information. Luckily, it isn't just a bunch of big words to me. I find it very interesting. These are cool creatures. And if you have a microscope, you, there's just a whole world of, of cool stuff out there. Mac, right? Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. Mac, welcome back first. Thanks for joining us again. You bet. And uh, I, you know, you mentioned something that's kind of been difficult for me since I've been doing uh, training courses and working in this field, and that is the confusion over how, first of all, the kingdoms are classified and then how mold or fungi are classified. Can you talk to us a little bit about, first, what are the kingdoms of life? What are the proper ways of, at least according to your current research, um, of categorizing the kingdoms of life? You know, it just depends on which book you go to. I've got two books here on mycology right here at my desk that I thought I'd bring along. One is called Introductory Mycology by Alexopoulos and Mims, and this is a standard work. If you look at the references of anybody writing about mold, they always quote this guy. He's a real authority. Then I've got this wonderful book called Basic Botany by Arthur Cronquist, who was the botanist for the New York Museum of Natural History. And it's a fascinating botany book. Now, botany is the study of plants. And the fungi were generally studied as part of botany courses back in the 70s and 80s. But now the fungi have been given their own kingdom. They're considered to be different than plants, different than animals, different than bacteria. You, you, some people give several different species of bacteria different kingdoms. Some lump them into one. Uh, I can go into the technical distinctions between any or all of them. Uh, but the mycologists... The, the stuff that's in the kingdom of the fungi, the classifications there are incredibly tricky. It's as though you were going to classify the buildings in Pittsburgh. And you had one classification for buildings over 20 stories tall, but lo and behold, one special group will be Indian teepees because the rope that's used to tie the poles together up at the apex of the teepee is the same material that's used for one of the window caulkings in the building, so they put that in that group. That's the kind of confusion that comes up in this mycology. They've been studied extensively by guys that are wonderful scientists that aren't doing it for the money. They're just interested in it. And the lifestyles and cycles and physiology of these fungi are so complicated and so varied for such basically simple, quote-unquote, organisms 
that it, you know classifications really get to be a bear. I have the authorities. They both both of these guys have classification systems that differ, and they each refer to each other's and say, if you don't like mine, try his. Because there are a lot of arbitrary conventions that are involved in this. Well, I guess that, that what makes it tough, you know, difficult for, uh, I have the AIHA field guide in front of me. They have one way of classifying things. The ACGIH has another way of classifying things, and the IICRC has a third. Uh, What's the what's the simplest way to look at this? The macro fungi versus micro fungi. The uh, you know the way that AIHA. Well, I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with how AIHA classifies it. Well, I've looked at the, through those books. You know, the industrial hygienists. They're good for they, they they got their start doing regulating chemicals in factories and mine safety and this sort of thing. This biological stuff came up and they jumped on it because they could see it was a money maker. But you know they they're into having. How many parts per million can you be exposed to and not get sick for these different kinds of industrial chemicals? And when it comes to biologicals, it doesn't do well. They hired, they jobbed it out to somebody who went through the science and picked out a classification set. They're really, they're not, I don't want to say they're arbitrary. Each one of these systems has good justifications for it. And they mention them that this isn't a perfect system. So any of those systems... What, what, what is a person doing the classification for is what it comes down to. The only way to answer your question is why do you want to know? And there are various reasons a person would want to know. If you want to be an expert on it, read all the different books and see all the different ones. That's what I'm doing, but that's what I do for a living, so it's easy for me. Mac, what's, the, dif- what's the difference between simple science versus stupid science? Well, simple science... It's where a guy who knows everything about astrophysics can sit down and explain it to a 12-year-old kid. Stupid science is where a 12-year-old kid mentality gets a hold of a bunch of 12-syllable words and throws it out to pretend he knows what he's talking about. Right. And I appreciate you making that distinction. I've heard you say it before, and I wanted, to say, I, I wanted you to say it again. What's the relationship between energy efficiency and building durability? Is there such a thing? Well, this is a big issue today. Um, I see people advocating green buildings that have dirt on the roads. And any good roofer knows that when you have dirt sitting on roofing material, if the dirt gets wet, it rots right through the roofing material. Dirt makes dirt. Dirt's a powerful force. And dirt making is a powerful force. And uh, so a green building, an energy-efficient building, that roof is supposed to keep the building cooler, but if it's rotting away the roofing, it's not doing much of a job. And that's the problem with a lot of our energy efficiency techniques is they reduce the ability of the building to transfer moisture through. My old 1914 house here cost me a fair amount of heat in the winter, but that heat that's escaping through the walls captures and evaporates any transient moisture that exists in my empty wall cavities and blows it outside. Moisture moves from warm to cold and it moves from wet to dry. But when you've got a building that retards the flow of energy and eliminates the flow of air, which are two of the basic principles of energy conservation, you've also reduced the drying capacity of the building. Now, a building doesn't have to have free energy transfer like and moisture transfer like my building, but you've got to make sure that the hills are sloped in the right direction so that the moisture gets either into the indoor air to get captured by the air conditioner or out to the outside what you don't want to have is a building that accumulates moisture in the middle and that's 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 the death sentence when it comes to energy conservation when you retrofit a building with an energy system that winds up trapping moisture on the inside that's the big problem there what are the most 
go ahead. I'm, go ahead, John. I'm just curious. I wanted to follow up on that, Cliff. What I think one of the most common examples, and I'd, I'd like to get your verification on this, Mac, is when people use um, synthetic or ex, you know exterior insulated finish systems on the outside of a building, and then put wallpaper on the inside of a building. Is that a good example of the problem you just described? Wallpaper was never a problem. You know, we, we all know that vinyl-covered buildings have terrible problems in air-conditioning climates. Everyone seems to know it but the hospital, the, the hotel designers that persist in putting vinyl wall covering on the exterior walls. What happens is you get moisture infiltration through a wall from the outside, rain and humidity in the summer. Let's say outside it's 90 degrees and the dew point 75. If they're in the hotel room cooling down to 72 degrees, that's going to draw moisture in because it's wetter and warmer outside and cooler and drier inside. So we've got the vapor pressure dry from the outside in. Then we have a waterproof coating applied to the interior face of the sheetrock. Well, here comes that air with a dew point of 75 degrees hitting that sheetrock, and it migrates through the sheetrock, and then it hits that final wall covering, which is un facing a 72-degree temperature in that room. You wind up getting condensation on the backside of the vinyl. It can be a disaster. I think that our buildings in the south were a lot more durable before we invented air conditioning. Now they all want to live like Yankees down there and run around all day long in August, and they got it cooled down to 72 degrees. Heck, some people in the south, seems like they turn the thermostat down even lower. And when you've got high dew point air like you get in Florida, you know, Alabama, well, the coast all the way up to Philadelphia. In Minnesota, we have problems with vinyl wall covering in the summer. We have a tropical climate here for a couple, three weeks a year, month a year, two months of the year, and that vinyl wall covering is a disastrous feature. You know, what are, air what are the most common uh, biodecay organisms that you find in these built environments? And then I've got a follow-up question. Well, there's a a whole host of them that can grow, but I've always told people that if I, they gave me about eight hours of their time with a microscope, I could train them to identify uh, on culture, on petri dish culture, you know, 90, 95% of the stuff they're going to see. The most common mold that's found in any kind of building air sample is cladosporium mold. The reason they find that is the most common is because these cladosporium molds tend to grow on green leaves not in high quantities. You know, the mold, it's on the leaves, it's on the blades of grass, and when they eventually die, then they almost immediately rot and turn to dirt with the help of the cladosporium species. But their air is full of that stuff in the summer when the wind blows around, and if the windows are open or the ventilation system's operating, they're going to be bringing cladosporium spores in. So that's probably the most common mold I find in the air, but it tends to be an outdoor grower. It'll grow on damp concrete. It forms kind of an olive green towards black color. It's a darker colored mold, sometimes shades to tan uh, on the surface, you know, when you're looking at it with your naked eye. Uh, Aspergillus and penicillium species seem to do very well on building materials in indoor environments that are damp. These molds are associated with the soil, not with the air, so they don't tend to be in high numbers in our air samples, but they grow at lower water activities. Then the cladosporium grows on green plants. Green plants are 90% water. Cladosporium is a thirsty one. Aspergillus and penicillium species require less moisture. 
and I can easily culture them by taking a piece of sheetrock and putting it in a 95% humidity container, which I can create with saturated salt bras. And in about three weeks, I'll have visible mold growth on that sheetrock without a drop of water added to it. And mostly Aspergillus and Penicillium species will be the first ones to step up because they can grow just with that humid air without actually having liquid water on the surface like some of the other fungi require. If the building stays wet enough long enough, you can get full-blown mushrooms growing out of the walls. Mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of the various wood rots. Wood rots uh, are, are basidiomycetes, if you will. They're, they're the mushroom producers, uh, ascomycetes, some of them. There's various families that produce fruiting bodies that we call mushrooms. And the mycologists, of course, have them divided up into different subgroups that we don't necessarily need to discuss here. But the mushroom requires actual liquid water in the wood. Wood won't rot unless it's wet. Wood will grow mold on it if it's damp in the air around it, but it will not. Wood rots. To digest that wood is a challenging task. Most molds aren't up to it. Molds will grow on the surface of wood, but they can't digest into the wood because of the complex uh, chemical matrix of the wood containing these molecules called lignin. And lignin is uh, a very complicated molecule and hard to chew up, but the wood lots know how to do it, and they'll digest into that wood. So we get mushrooms, we get yeasts. Yeasts are considered members of the kingdom of the fungi, even though they don't produce that fur ball, that, that kind of filamentous growth. Uh, and in, most yeasts don't anyway. Uh, there's a whole host of bacterial uh, uh, organisms that grow on uh, on building products as well, of which we've cultured a few. But bacteria and their role are less well known. I can take a mold and look at it under the microscope and distinguish one from another. Bacteria have to be cultured to, in order to identify them. They're too small to look at in the microscope and know which one they are. You have to culture them and see what they'll grow on and see what their nutritional requirements are. I've read somewhere that we can culture about 1% of all the bacteria in our own bodies and 1% of the ones we find in the soil outdoors as well. So we're just scratching the surface of that kingdom. What we do know is that the bacteria outnumber and outweigh all the other organisms on Earth. They actually, the number of bacteria in your body can outnumber the cells in your body. You're, you're, you're alive. <laughs> you're, you're a zoo. <laughs> it's interesting, Mac. I had dinner at uh, the local lodge last night, and a retired MD heard me talking a little bit about environmental and came over, and you know we got into some discussion on uh, staff and MRSA, and he was telling me how you know we had to have staff on our body, and uh, I can't remember what the purpose was. It had something to do with... Um, giving the skin flexibility or something along those lines. Are you familiar with that at all? Well, the bacteria have an immensely constructive role to play in our bodies. There's a, without the coliform bacteria, you know, you hear E. coli mentioned like it's a bad actor. Coliform bacteria are vital for our nutrition. They're living in your colon, and they're sucking out your food supply, but they're also processing some of the foods and releasing vitamins and providing nutrition for your body. So coliform bacteria are good unless you get a bad one. Some of these coliform bacteria, they're, they're naughty cousins that live in the wrong side of the tracks. They get into your body and they cause your colon to bleed out and people die from bloody diarrhea or from septic shock from being enormously over-colonized. What you get a lot of times with these infections is you get a bacterium that's harmless in its own place getting put into the wrong sector. And a good way to get a bacteria in the wrong, a bacterium or bacteria is plural, to get it in the wrong place is to make a surgical cut in somebody's body. So surgical wounds are vitally 
dangerous because when you've got like you're getting a hip replacement done, normal, harmless environmental bacteria shed by the surgeon drifting off their face or you know off their skin can wind up floating down and landing in the hip replacement way down deep in the joint. Your body doesn't have immune defense down there. You, the body doesn't expect to see invasive bacteria getting down that deep doesn't anticipate that a surgical wound. So you wind up having a harmless bacterium culturing down there in the joint and wind up creating an infection just because there's no way to get rid of it. It just more and more of it proliferates in the wrong place, creates a nuisance. That's the same with yeasts that are normal part of the, of the, the floor of the skin. When they get inside in different places, they can become a real nuisance. So it's just everything in its right place and right time. Take mold and rot, for instance. We want everything to eventually return to dirt so that it can grow back into new life. That's the billion-year-old cycle of life on Earth. But we don't want our buildings to prematurely rot. We want to give them some dwell time before the dirt factory eventually takes over. <laughs> and when you've got a building that turns to dirt before the mortgage is paid off, everybody's angry. Real quick follow-up on the, the rot issue, Mac. What's the difference between dry rot and wet rot? Well, dry rot uh, describes the appearance of the wood that looks like it's been dried out. What really you have are two, the two distinctions that are more accurate are white rot and brown rot. The brown rots, remember I was talking about lignin being this complex molecule. Now, when you get, you get photosynthesis and the sun shines, the green plants take that sunlight and turn carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight into sugar, glucose. And the glucose is then fashioned into two chain polymers. One's called cellulose. The other's called starch. Starch is digestible and easy to degrade. Cellulose is more durable and more difficult to degrade. So plants build themselves out of cellulose and feed themselves on starch, all made from sunlight. And then all the molecules of life basically stem from that. Now, cellulose is the most common thing made by plants. The second most common product is lignin. And lignin is this very complex organic compound that provides wood with its stiffness. Cellulose is soft and flexible, like the blade of grass, but the twig or the straw, that's the more, the more lignin you have, the more brittle and the wood becomes. Now, wood itself has got a lot of lignin in it, and it's got a lot of soft cellulose and hemicellulose and sugars. It's got a whole variety of things. But the brown rot will only digest enough lignin to expose the pockets of soft, sugary goodies. So the wood rot that produces the brown rot will digest through the lignin to get at the goodies, but not waste a lot of energy eating the lignin. The white rots will turn the whole wood to fluff by digesting all of the lignin. They get the clean plate club pin for doing a better job, but lignin digestion isn't as rewarding as eating sugar. It's kind of like the difference between eating a carrot and eating a spoonful of white sugar. The white sugar being the soft contents of the wood, the lignin being the more difficult to digest stuff. So what the brown rot does is it leaves most of the lignin behind so the wood looks like it's been dried out. It, in fact, is a wet process and requires the wood to be soaking wet in order for the, like all the fungi, they're food absorbers. What they do is they extrude digestive enzymes into the environment around them, and these digestive enzymes require water to work. So they have liquid 
as the medium for the digestion to occur. The material, surrounding material is digested into nutrient, which is then absorbed into the feeding body of the fungus, which then incorporates the new nutrition into building more fungus. So the fungus absorbs the paper or the canvas or the shoe leather or the sheetrock or the piece of wood, depending on the species, and then turns it into mold or rot or you know, mushroom. And eventually the whole thing is tending towards dirt, breaking down the complex built-up life form whether it's paper or shoe leather, whatever, and turning it into dirt. And these, these various fungi have digestive organisms, uh, enzyme arrays that can digest keratin, like human skin, cellulose, uh, chitin, that's insect skin. There's a whole variety of different digestive enzymes these guys have. And each fungus has a different water requirement and a different uh, food requirement, what it can handle. They all work together as a team and basically any organic material winds up being returned to a soil form where it then provides nutrients for new life. I don't, I don't want to get into detail on this, but I just want to make sure that we emphasize the bacteria are also playing a role during this whole process. Is that accurate? Yes, they are. But they, the, the bacteria do do a wonderful job of rotting, spoiling, and dirtifying themselves. The fungi do the heavy work, the heavy lifting. You know, they don't get a lot of bacterial depth decomposition of lignin, for instance. We'd have, if we relied on the bacteria, we'd have tree, piles of tree trunks 50 miles high all over the world. You know, the fungi. The fungi are serious heavy hitters for the, the big jobs, digesting cellulose, digesting uh, uh, wood, meat, milk, protein material. Bacteria can do a good job on that. That's the easy pickings. That's the low-hanging fruit. But the hard jobs, the fungi take on, and hey, they do a splendid job. I think we have to look... What we've, what we've lost with our, our worship of our own engineering and our own tools is we've lost the fact that we're not really more important on this earth than a maggot and that the wonderful array of skills and abilities that we see in our fellow creatures whom we tend to look down at and refer to as nature or the natural world or relegate the scenery to look at out our windows are actually teachers that are available to show us what's going on and to label organisms as good and bad and attack them and try to destroy them you know, is a foolish approach. We're better off to understand them and work with them to you know, make a more harmonious world for us and everybody else, whether it's a durable building or people that can live together as neighbors without being at each other's throats. Let's go to our technical director, Dr. Weil, and see if he has any comments or... Dieter? Okay, I, I was muted, now I'm unmuted. There you go. You, you I, feel like, I feel like Beethoven in the background. Yeah, I heard it. Uh, C minor, C minor, yeah, that's good. It's quite an introduction. How are you doing? And we, and we can also use uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. I like them too. Uh, um, uh, Mac, uh, good, uh, good for you, it's still good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, for me, it's good afternoon. Uh, entertaining uh, uh, as usual, as usual. And I love the way you do talk about a very difficult subject and make it digestible, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I didn't know, I didn't know uh, that you did microscopy, which I taught many, many, many years ago. And miraculously, I worked for many, 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 many years, and we talk about that later, on filtration. I didn't know that either. I have my opinions on, uh, uh, on that. 
But I think, uh, uh, Mac, I mean, this is really, really a compliment to you. You make a very difficult subject very yeah, easy to understand. And I know, I, I'm glad to know that, you know, there is a difference between bacteria and a bacterium. I learned, when I didn't really want to, I learned Latin in Germany. <laughs> and I, uh, <coughs> I knew what the plural and the singular was of uh, nouns. Anyway, no, I think, I think you make a, a wonderful, wonderful point and explain a, a very complex subject to, to our audience and make it very understandable. And needless to say, you're an incredibly <laughs> entertaining speaker. There's no doubt about it. I, I have seen and heard you several times, and uh, whether you are opinionated or not, that not, not doesn't mean anything to me. You're, you're, you're wonderful. All right, thanks, Dieter. I is, think... that, is, is, that, is that enough of a compliment? <laughs> Gosh, I'm just blushing. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but you have that beard, Mac, and people probably wouldn't see it. But I, I want to go back to microbiology just for a couple of, of, of short questions. Joe's trying to you know, kind of beef up the curriculum a little bit. Can you define for our listeners what a biofilm is? That's a very interesting concept that's becoming more sexy in the press lately. Uh, Nature, which is my favorite science journal, it's an English publication, had an article on biofilms where they found that there were bacteria that will grow as individuals in a certain manner. When they sense the presence of others around them, they change their physiology entirely and, it, it, and secrete a sort of a, an adhesive so that these bacteria then stick together. Bacterial biofilms, or biofilms in general, rarely just can, can consist of one species, though. They become complex arrays that line all kinds of surfaces, plumbing water pipes, s particles of stone in soil, your own arteries and veins in your body. These biofilms are everywhere, and they perform remarkably complex tasks that are well beyond the scope of modern science, but they're being actively explored. Uh, we find that they can be a problem where they actually can plug up water lines, and so that's being studied. We are concerned about biofilms forming, uh, you know, shedding contaminants that then get into the water stream and can create problems downstream. But this whole concept of tiny microorganisms knitting together to form a layer is what a biofilm is. Thanks. There's all kinds of them, depending once again on the moisture conditions and the nutritional conditions, the temperature what about yeah. what about viruses? Are viruses alive? Are they living? Viruses are part of the scheme of life, but I wouldn't say that they were alive. They're agents of life. They what a bi that viral what a virus will do is if it becomes becomes close to its appropriate host cell, it'll have a locking device to latch onto the cell surface of a particular type of host cell, and then will inject its genetic material into the cell, it will, that genetic material will find its way to the nucleus or operating system of that cell, then hijack the cell and turn it from its normal functioning into a viral factory, producing more and more copies of the virus, which then escape and attack new host cells. A perfect example being the flu virus. Somehow it gets into your body and somehow it finds its way to your lungs. Starts attacking, that's the host cell. It's got a locking device for your, before you know it, your lung cells are being eaten by virus. Eaten in that the virus is getting into each of these cells, turning it into a viral factory, destroying the functioning of the cell, and then producing more and more virus, which attacks more and more cells. And if, the, you're, if you didn't know how to respond to that flu virus, it would eventually kill all the lung cells in your body and you'd die. 
Over to you, Joe. That's what the virus. That's, that's, that's a flu virus. There's viruses that only attack particular plants. There are back viruses called phages that attack particular bacteria. There's just trillions of different kinds of viruses, and we we only know about a few. They don't culture. You have to find a host organism to grow them in. Let's have a question here, Mac, and I'm not sure what what it is. And maybe I, I hope you've seen. It. What is a prion? A prion. Prion, prion, you, you, you tell me. You know, it's one of those ones like, like you and me, Joe, we just read it in a book, right? Right. You know, how, do you, how do you say it, right? Prion, prion. Yeah. Whatever. What that is, now, when you have, you've, we've all heard about DNA now and genes. And what genes do is they code for protein building. And genes are a hidden code for protein building. And every, you know, every little three DNA molecules Every three, there's four different kinds, and then they get these codes of four different kinds written any way you want. You can have, let's say, they're one, two, three, and four are the different uh, DNA molecules. You have one, 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 two, 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 one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, over times a gajillion. That's in your body. And that protein is coded by a long string of DNA that the RNA reads, and then it assembles a protein. So that's what the DNA is doing, is writing protein codes in a cookbook. Your DNA is a cookbook for cooking proteins. Now, this prion, what it is, is a protein that is an absolutely normal protein produced absolutely normally, but it, what happens when a protein is finished, when it's done being made by the body, it's full of different electrical charges from the different amino acids that make up proteins, and those amino acids cause that protein to conform into a globe or a football shape or a twisty thing, they have a particular shape that the protein is supposed to form. And what the prions do is they get in your nervous system. They are the right genetic code protein shaped wrong. And when they meet a night, it's kind of like that bad boy meets your daughter and ruins her. Uh, <laughs> this protein, when it gets next to a good protein, turns it into a bad protein. And what it eventually winds up creating is what's called a spongiform encephalopathy, which is a nice way to say a bunch of tubes and twisty holes in your brain and your nervous system tissue. And that's what the eventual outcome on autopsy is for people who have prion disease, is their brain is, is like a sponge all full of holes all from a good protein gone bad. These prions are remarkably stable. The kind of prion that produces kuru, a particular kind of encephalopathy that cannibals suffered from in New Guinea. This prion was kept in pure formaldehyde for 10 years. It would still do its dirty work. Nuclear radiation doesn't disable it. The only way you could get rid of a prion would be to burn it to ash. There is a demonstrable chain of transmission to take contaminated nervous system tissue, even bones from a creature that's infected, and bone meal can actually transfer the prion to the tomato so that the person eating the tomato could get this prion disease. It's, it's, it's enough to scare the hell out of you, except, you know, doesn't seem to be wiping us out in any large numbers. What you want to do is, if you really want to, your best prophylactic is to not eat brain tissue. But it does infect meat, and it does, you know, it various internal organs other than just the brain. I guess I don't. That's one thing I don't eat a lot of is brain tissue. Although, I'm sure there are. People oh, I, I, there's there's different kinds of sausage. I mean, got a brains. I like it. I don't care. I'm 60 years old. I'll, it's not going to kill me. <laughs> Something else will get me first. You know, Mac. While we're talking about some of these off, you know, uh, slightly um, uh, obscure types of issues, there's something out. Morgellons disease. Is that pronounced 
properly. Oh no, I, you know that that one's that one's off my radar. I'd have to look it up in the dictionary. I, I've okay. seen that. I can't. What does it do? That's the one that they have the fibers growing out of their um, growing out of the person's skin, and they really haven't been able to identify what types <laughs> of fibers they are. It's yeah. into a carpet. I know they're not synthetic, that's for sure. I just thought maybe you had some info. I've, I've seen no, some no, no, that, one, that one I haven't heard about. Yeah, when you get a chance, you might want to uh, look at that one a little bit. You want to you want to try to tame that one so you can kind of grow like an oriental carpet, you know, with a nice pattern or something? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of somebody who's got it. i just never heard of it before. I, well, the problem is they can't figure out these fibers are not known to man. No one can figure out what type of fiber it is, and some people think it's psychological, and others say, no, there's definitely something there. So it's something that I think we'll see more of as time goes on. Yeah, okay, that one I'm not up on. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, Max, speaking of of obscure, uh, I understand you know a little bit about the role of heredity in Russian bioterrorism research. Can you comment on that? Well, there's a book by, called Bioterror by Ken Alabek. I think that's what it's called. Ken Alabek is, I think, a shortened version of his name, and he was a Soviet uh, biologist who worked in their weapon, germ weapons program. In the Soviet Union, they, Stalin killed most, most of the smart people in the country because he felt, felt, found them to be threatening. A Russian friend of mine said that he thinks that Stalin is responsible for the increased level of, in, of drunken incompetence in the Soviet Union because people who were smart, he killed drunken, worthless people were harmless, and he left them alone. So even if you were smart, you pretended to be drunken, worthless, because it was a safe way to behave. <laughs> well, he didn't, the communists didn't like the concept of evolution, because it suggested that some people were better than others. They felt that the environment could create a good organism out of a bad one, that you could make a tropical pea grow in an Arctic climate if you just gave it the right conditions for growth, that the heredity didn't matter. And this was an important concept, and it's completely contrary to modern science. So they had no biological science unless you wanted to make germ weapons. In order to make germ weapons, you have to deal with real biology, which includes heredity, and you have to be able to culture things and cultivate traits you want and discourage traits you don't through genetic and you know changes. And so Ken Alabeck, being a passionate biologist, studied weapons, weaponizing germs, because that was the only way he could be a biologist in Russia. So he wound up telling a lot of tales about these miserable germ factories that they located out in these central provinces where all kinds of dirty work was done in contradiction to the treaties that they'd signed. And through the 50s and the 60s, you know, 70s, Nixon had signed this anti-germ warfare treaty, and we obeyed it, and they didn't. So there's some pretty nasty areas in Russia. But I mean, about the hereditary, it was just that their smartest biologists were put into this horrible program because it was the only way they could study their science. You know how scientists are. We like to do our stuff. You know, speaking of science, what interests you? What's your point of interest at this point? I guess I'm interested in seeing how many people we can cram onto this planet without rendering it unlivable for ourselves. Our fellow creatures are dying off at a phenomenal rate, and a lot of my favorite ones are on the death list, like the Siberian tiger and all this. I'm curious to see just how much we can muck things off. Before we, modern man, I think, badly needs a sense of contrition. Like, my God, we've chopped down all the trees, all the water's filthy, the sky, we can't even breathe the air. When are people going to turn around and face these big facts? 
And that's the kind of green or environmental education that I'm most interested in working on. And believe it or not, absolutely no one will give you a dime to say anything like that because it's bad for business. <laughs> that's what I'm interested in, though. I'm interested in the sort of the global sense of, of ecolo global ecology. How are we all going to get along? I'm not talking about Rodney King and blacks and whites. I'm talking about us and all the other creatures on the planet that we seem to feel are on a lower level than we are. I wonder when we're going to come to the startling conclusion that that's not the way it's, it works. I'm interested in that. Mac, I want to ask you, um, I guess we've got another person that we're going to talk to. I'm going to ask you to kind of hang on for the for the roundup. But there's two things I, I'd like you to, uh, to comment on if you could. Uh, number one, uh, is there anything that we forgot to ask you? Is there anything that's really burning or itching that you're you're looking to talk about? You guys eat the, I don't know if this is on, wrong to say, but these guys emailed me questions last night. Most questions were all good. I found them all interesting, and I just think that there's, there's just not enough time to talk about everything we could. You know, we have you know, building ecology, the various kinds of bugs that grow in the buildings and what we know about them and what we don't, what they look like under the microscope, what they do, what the effects they have. There's health effects, effects on the building materials, biodegradation. I think you guys have touched bases on a lot of different things, and I've been permitted to rant and rave about a number of my favorite Well, well we, we kind of like that. How will our listeners get in touch with you? Can you give your email address or phone number or however sure, you would not prefer? not a problem. The, if, if you if you posted it somewhere, it'd be better. But it's P as in Peter E A R C zero one zero at U M N dot E D U P E A R C zero one zero at U M N dot E D U. <laughs> is that uh, your University of Minnesota email there? That's, well, that's, I, I'm an alumnus. Uh, people will appreciate that. I'm not, I'm not an alumni. We are alumni. I am an alumnus of the University of Minnesota right. School of Public Health, and I use their web server. And so that's why I'm, I, I do teach classes over there once in a while, but I'm not an employee of the university. They have a good uh, web service, so a good spam filter. Oh, just you know, Cliff had one more question on here. I've Go got ahead. to get you to answer Go this, ahead. okay? I, I, I understand that you use a spatula for something other than flipping pancakes. What, what's the answer on that one, Mac? Just that, you know, you see a lot of these microbiological reports, mold reports, and they collect air samples, and then they run around and press a piece of scotch tape against anything that looks like mold on the walls, and they call that an investigation. I don't think much of that. I collect a few of these ambient air samples, but then I take my air sampler and put it right down next to the carpet and beat on a carpet with a pancake flipper about a square foot and suck air while I'm beating on that carpet. I call that an aggressive air sample, and that helps me look at the settled dust. I think people, investigators have to remember that the spore count in the air comes and goes, the transient events, the bursts of spore release, but those spores all wind up in the settled dust where they remain viable enough to culture or to examine directly. If you want to suck up a dust sample and look at the dust under the microscope, that's a, a, an important thing to do. So that carpet discipline, in addition to disciplines, the carpet and keeps it behaving by smacking it. <laughs> I just use a regular pancake flipper. Okay. That opens up a whole other discussion on Ermi. I don't know if we want to go there, Mac. Any quick comments on Ermi? 
the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. You familiar with that one? No. What's this one? People are always trying to come up with these standards for the lawyers and for the insurance man. Uh, that's the that's EPA what this is done for. It's all crap. But anyway, what's this one? This is the EPA standard. We'll, we'll oh, yes. get you back. Where you have to have the incredibly expensive test where you use uh, uh, DNA tags and uh, fluorescence or something. Absolutely. You've got yeah, to it's probably a, probably a great thing. You know, and I'd like to travel in a rocket ship, too. But <laughs> we, can do, we don't need to have things like, all we need to have is investigators out there who know how to use their own microscopes, who aren't sending things off to laboratories, and do their own investigations. We don't need to have those. That's, if you're going to have a standardized way for a secretary to go out and do a test, that ERMI is probably the best. Instead of putting $10,000 into training her to know what she's doing, spend $10,000 on sampling one house. I don't know how much ERMI costs, and I'm sure it's a good system. I don't mean to criticize it. I've read about it. looks great, just not affordable, not practical yet. Uh, 300 bucks a sample right now. And that's yeah, and I like to take about 10, 15 samples in a house. The idea that you can take one little bit of dust and diagnose a house from it is just silly. Something someone would think of in an office. Mac, remember... Uh, I'm glad I asked your opinion. I, I love it. I love it. P please stay on the line. We got your outgoing music here. Hang on. Cool. We're going to bring you back for the uh, yes oh, yeah. round table. Okay. Hold on. I, hang on. Stop. I, I, we're going to bring you. We're going to uh, bring you back at the end, Mac, for a round table. So it'll be in probably. It's uh, eleven forty-seven. Oh, you'll be you'll be done in, by by noon, right? Yeah, we're going to bring you around. Oh right. yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll just hang on. I, I got okay. my books to read. I'm good. Go ahead. Growing mold in my heart Growing mold in my brain Growing mold all around me And feeding me away Okay, Joe. Right. Cliff, let's move on. I, I believe we have Vicki Warren. We were a little concerned about whether she would make it, and I don't know if we'll have time for the IH-101 today, Dr. Dieter, but we want you to join us for the uh, roundup. Vicki Warren is an electrical engineer. She's also a council-certified indoor environmentalist and is also certified by the International Institute for Biology and Ecology as a building biologist environmental consultant. And uh, let's see, she's also had 25 years working in the power industry as an electrical engineer, teaching courses, testing high-voltage equipment, and developing products. Because of her awareness that our buildings are sick, Vicki works with the staff of IBE as their program director. That's the uh, acronym for the Bob Biology and Ecology Group. Vicki is also the founder of a local nonprofit in Middle Tennessee, Wings of Eagles Healthy Living, that is dedicated to educating individuals on how to improve the quality of their indoor environments. Vicki, do we have you on the line? All right, hang I on. We, we got our music. Hang on. Oh, we have music? Yep. Great. Okay. Friday night, feeling real good, weekend in sight. 
got a new phone, a new belt clip attached to my hip. Even got the chip. Now everyone can get in touch with me. I got 700 minutes and weekends free. They even threw in an extra battery so I can keep in touch with my family. But now everybody's all in my mix. I had to go and learn all the cell phone tricks. When somebody tries to talk to me, I just act like I'm talking on the phone, you see. My signal's weak, my battery's dead. It must be true, that's what I said. But if I ever get stranded, I'm never alone. What would I do without my cell phone? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one. You like that one? Yeah. Just for you. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate your thoughtfulness. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we wanted to quickly give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the upcoming uh, conference with the, the Bob Biologists, I guess is the proper, Bob Biology and Ecology Group. Yes, sir. That's it. Uh, yeah, we're real excited about it. Um, it's uh, going to be in April 19th and 20th in Nashville. And Bob Biology is a nonprofit that's, whose mission is to gather together the scientists, the uh, engineers, the builders, the architects, and the indoor environmentalists to look at the science and devise ways and why our indoor environments are causing adverse health and for the indoor environmentalists to figure out, you know, how do we detect the problem, what's acceptable, and then most importantly, what to do about it. So how and when we need to do something and then what to do about it. This year's uh, conference is going to is real exciting because we're delving into the realm of electromagnetics. And we've got some fantastic speakers that are coming in that have been doing research, uh, research scientists on the adverse health effects of electromagnetics, cell phone and cell phone radiation with Dr. George Carlo, uh, the impact of actually using a cell phone. But, you know, cell phone spreads to an indoor environmental uh, realm with portable phones, Wi-Fi, uh, wireless connections, security systems, all of those fall into the same biological impact. And I then we've... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, the topic that, you know, that caught my attention was, and I've seen something on chat rooms, etc., about this, the cell phone radiation research results, and your speakers, Dr. George Carlo, you mentioned that. And I, I was reading in there that his study had started in 1993. And this, yeah, this was a federally funded program. It, it started back in '93 uh, when there was a lawsuit for a gentleman that whose wife developed a brain tumor, and her doctor said it was because of her cell phone. And that lawsuit went up to the federal government, and they said, "Well, figure it out." So they hired George Carlo to oversee uh, studies, uh, a 28.5 you know million dollar research study program around the world to determine whether cell phones were safe. In 1999, when all of the research was not proving that they were safe, they canceled the funding. And uh, Dr. Carlo then has made it his mission to continue to support the research and to talk about what was actually figured out and discovered. And there are, today, there are hundreds of case studies about the adverse health effects. And Right now, of course, what was it last week? I guess the Food and Drug Administration has decided yet again to, you know, acknowledge a lot of the studies coming out of Europe that these are bad, and so the food, the FDA is reopening that whole investigation. Um, well, that, you know. That's going to be his presentation. Will be about the study. Is he allowed to speak about the study results? I mean, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, the presentation is going to be about the biological effects. What actually happens? What you know, as, as Mac was saying about the protein issue, um, Dr. Carlo will talk about what happens at the membrane cell wall with these external electromagnetic frequencies. 
and how that's directly related to things like Alzheimer's, autism, cancer, uh, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, you start naming them, all these are membrane sensitivity syndromes. And they are directly impacted by this external, unnatural environment that we're creating. Sounds, uh, sounds interesting. I, I'm sure it's controversial as well, but it, uh, it's something we wanted to alert listeners to and then let them know that that conference is coming up. I also wanted to, um, if you could tell us quickly how they can contact you or get more information on the conference. Sure. To get information on the conference, uh, check out the Building Biology website. That's buildingbiology.net. Um, that's all one word, buildingbiology.net. And to email me, it's vwarren, V-W-A-R-R-E-N, at buildingbiology.net. Great. Can you uh, stick around for the uh, roundtable yeah, with but us? Joe, can I say one more thing about sure. it? One of the things that we focus on as Bob biologists is not just about the science. This year at the conference, we're also going to start, this is the protocol for testing, this is the instrument, this is what's good and bad, and this is what to do about it. Because we believe in solution, not just identifying the problem. Great. Great. I, I know I've uh, worked with Peter Sirk, who's one of the, we've had him on the show before, and if anybody's interested in more information, they can download that previous show. I don't have the number handy, but uh, Peter did a great job of discussing the Bob Biology uh, philosophy, I guess you would call it. It was great. All right. Well, let's, uh, Cliff, if you want to yeah. move on to the roundtable, we'll bring Dieter. I think Glenn Feldman might be on the phone, and uh, we've got Max still waiting. We'll yeah. Bring Vicky in and let's round it up. Okay, we can do that. Move them out, hit them up, hit them up, move them out, hit them up, grow high. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, cut them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw. Okay, Chris, who do we have? We've got we've got Dieter, we've got Joe, we've got our two guests. I don't believe we have Glenn. Um, I guess we can go to... four there, Dieter. Um, is he? I'm here. Okay. That's Dieter. Yep, who's, I'm here. Who's four? Yep, my German accent comes through. Okay. And guest three is Vicky, I guess. Okay. I'm here. Who's guest four? That's Mac. Oh, Mac is three. Right. Okay. Okay. So, I thought we had Glenn on the phone, no, but maybe not. He's not. Okay. Well, let's go to let's go to Doctor Dieter for his uh, comments or, or questions or. Well, uh, I, I certainly have a comment, and uh, I congratulate Mac. Uh, I will have to give in the not too distant uh, future uh, a little bit of talk on uh, viruses, and I will download this one via Joe Hughes. What you said over there, I think it was absolutely brilliant. My compliments. You, 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 you are absolutely fantastic whenever you touch on a subject that you know about, how to explain it and make it digestible for, for, for other people. It's unbelievable. Uh, I really, I really enjoy that, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. After we are off the air, I will ask you another question, and you know what the question is. If not, I'm going to email it to you. Uh, I like your comment on... Um, the survival of mankind in this damn world in which we are living. And we are very arrogant. Uh, if we would look back a little bit, you know, just a million years ago or 500,000 year, uh, 500, years ago, we will find out that every species that ever crawled on this earth died out sooner or later. Uh, 
And I think if we work harder on it, I think we can accomplish that. <laughs> I really, I really think so. I, I, I think we can do that. For whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be a meteorite or whatever. I think we can work on it. You know, more, more plastic and more microwaves <laughs> never do it. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about filtration, and I didn't know, Mac, that you did uh, filtration, but we leave that for next week. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I'm very much interested in filter efficiency and filtration and what it means and how to do it. In fact, I have planned to give my swan song uh, in uh, August in uh, Westford, Massachusetts, uh, probably that's going to be my last official talk that I will be giving on uh, filter testing and filtration at uh, the summer camp of uh, Joe Stiburek. Look forward to that, Dieter. I, I, will, I have to hire somebody because I still have not mastered PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, Mac, you'll be there as well this year. Oh, you have oh yeah, filters is a good subject, and that'll be great. Oh, well, I love it. Vicki, uh, anything you'd like to add or comment upon? Well, I want to comment on what Max said. I love the comment that he was making about buildings because, of course, from a biology perspective, having the, uh, the flow of energy and air or vapor actually through buildings is critical. We talk about a building being our third skin, and, you, you know, you wouldn't wrap your children in plastic, but yet we go around <laughs> wrapping our buildings in it. <laughs> well said, Vicky. Love it. Love it. I don't think you'll get any argument from Mac on that one. What do you think, Mac? But, but you know, some of the best innovations but, in building involve extruded petroleum products. It's just squandering the petroleum resource in worthless, stupid ways. That's what I object to. You know, okay. Mac, um, Mac, i got a question for you. I, I, we know that Dr. Dieter is of the German persuasion, and Joe is of the liberal political persuasion. And I'm of so the, am I. And I'm of the conservative <laughs> Political persuasion of what political persuasion are you, Mac? Cliff's such a trouble. You have to ask him. <laughs> He's such a trouble. No, he doesn't know. I'm not a liberal or a conservative. I am a member of a new political party I founded myself called the Reductionists. And our platform is that there are way too many people on this world. We have some pretty controversial slogans like incentivize infanticide. <laughs> Post-birth abortion, you can pick your own people to put up as candidates. There are too many people in this world, and all the major religions seem to be promoting man as some higher life form than the rest of us, part of some divine plan. And how about the pretty blue world as a divine plan where we fit in a little bit better without so many of us running around? So whenever it gets to a scientific or a political argument, I always interject, you know, you can stop this or you can stop the electromagnetic fields or the mold, but there's still too many people. Maybe we should have more mold and more bad electrical fields. And then no one has an argument against it. But oh, Mac, kids, Mac, I agree with kids, you 100%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Joe. If you have a car, if you have a car, you don't drive it at 100% of power at all times. Right. Right. It's as simple as that. I think people, imagine if we were, I was reading in this guy, uh, his name's uh, James Lovelock, and he's written the Gaia Hypothesis and now the Revenge of Gaia, the idea that the Earth's a living thing and that we've made it sick. And he, he suggests that there's something very similar to that, that uh, it's, you know, it's fitting in that we should be the nervous system for the planet. We should be the nerves that gently connect all the other creatures. We should be pulling thorns out of lion's paws. Ferocious alligators should come to us to get their teeth cleaned and trust us to do that job. 
you know, that's, that's, that's an imaginable future. That, that, that is possible that we actually could fit in. But like, like Dieter says, we're doing a pretty good job of going the opposite direction right now. Yep, we do. I don't even know if we need to increase our efficiency. I think we're headed that way. Without any further acceleration, we are going off the cliff. Joe. That's what I think right now. Cliff, our first reductionist, I believe. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> first and only. We'll have to uh, continue this discussion at yep. a later date. Can, what do can, you think? can we add another hour to it and keep on going <laughs> and get get a little bit away from indoor air quality and stuff like that and do well, well, I don't want to do politics. Marty no. Python has already done the meaning of life, so I don't know what we could do. <laughs> <laughs> But, Mac, we would like to just any time in the future, we have people that periodically call in and any time that you'd like to call in and, and just chat, uh, you know, we'll put you on. We just we just like to have you. And you well, know, we, Mac, Mac is fantastic. He is well, absolutely nice fantastic, fantastic and entertaining. And, Thanks, uh, Vicky. Thanks, Dieter. Cliff, Joel. All right. Thank you, Mac. Cliff, do you want to wrap things yeah, up? Yeah, I, I can wrap things up. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. Links to IEQ Radio are available at ieqtraining.com and unsmoke.com web pages. If you're interested in American Indoor Air Quality Council certified training or customized training programs, please visit the ieqtraining.com website or contact joe.use at ieqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to our guests, my co-host Radio Joe, our technical director Dr. Dietrich Weil, and to the wingman Chris Boisel. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 